Programming Throwdown, Episode 72, Internationalization. Take it away, Jason. Hey, everyone. So uh, this is the last show before our December uh, prize giveaway. It's our second annual prize giveaway. So last time we gave away, I think, three T-shirts. Um, so every time we try and do a little bit more. Um, thanks, everyone, for donating, all our patrons. Uh, you know, we put that money to the server costs, to advertising, to get, to get the word out, all of that. Um, but every year, you know, we have some left over and uh, we figure out a way to give that money back to you through prizes. So um, this year we had a little bit more left over and we also want to do something really cool. So uh, we're actually going to figure out a way to get a prize to everybody. Um, so it's going to work like this. Um, uh, to all our Patreon, we're going to give out the three T-shirts. Yeah, yeah, to everyone who's uh, signed up through Patreon and supported us. Um, so we'll get uh, three people will get a T-shirt, just like last year. Um, I'm also going to I've 3D printed some pretty cool things. So uh, three people are going to get this really cool screw puzzle. If you don't know what that is, it's it's uh, basically uh, you get these pieces and they all look kind of goofy, but if you kind of turn them a certain way then uh, it makes this really cool shape and it kind of everything kind of locks into place. So I've printed three of those. I've also printed three fractal pyramids, which are pretty cool. If you haven't seen them, just kind of imagine, you know, like the Sierpinski triangle, but in 3D. Um, so, so three people will get that. And uh, everyone else who uh, is a patron of ours uh, is we're going to figure out a way to mail you something. So we're figuring out now whether it's going to be some type of like 3D printed badge or a laser cut uh, a logo or something like that. I'm actually going to design it tonight or tomorrow and I will try out a few designs um, you know, ourselves before December. Um, but uh, yeah, we're going to figure out a way to get something to everybody. Um, people who signed up uh, like early patrons might have not put their address. So I changed Patreon about six months ago to require an address. Um, but if you signed up early, uh, you might have not given us your address. So please go in and uh, put in your address um, or put in something like, don't mail me anything. And we know not to not to pick you as one of the winners. <laughs> but uh, um, but yeah, that would help us out a lot. Otherwise we have to kind of, you know, email you and track you down and, and, uh, and wait for you to email us back and all of that, so. So that's the giveaway. Pretty excited. Oh, the last thing, we're going to uh, stream the whole thing live on Twitch um, and maybe other things too, like, I don't know, Facebook Live. I don't know if we could do all of them at the same time. Maybe. I'll figure that out. Uh, we're going to stream it live. I'll let you know more of the details when, when we have them. But, uh, you know, stay tuned. Follow us on, you know, Google+, Facebook, Twitter. You know, I'll post all of them, LinkedIn, uh, all the regular places I post the show. Uh, updates. I'll let everyone know when, when, and where we will be uh, streaming live. So, you feel like a, a good old Santa Claus now, huh? That's right. Yeah. Hopefully, you, you folks get this in time for Christmas. It'd be pretty awesome. All right. Put well, some put some programming throw down in the stocking. Now that everyone feels in the holiday spirit, we'll do our news. Wait, it's but it's not it's not our December show. So okay. Anyways. Um, <laughs> my first link is uh, an SQLite SQLite uh, 3 tutorial and guide. Uh, this was an article I saw recently, and as I come across stuff, I try to just sort of squirrel it away. Um, but this one is going over how to use SQLite. And although the article is, is quite good, um, I'm sure there are many other articles as well in SQLite 3. I wanted to use it as a sort of pseudo tool of the show. Uh, to be able to talk about how good SQLite is. Um, and it's actually really commonly used, but if you've never used it before, uh, check out this tutorial, check out SQLite 3. Um, it has lots of really good features um, and you can find all sorts of people using it in all kinds of projects. I know like a lot of mobile, f mobile apps use SQLite for database storage yep. engine. Um, people use it you know, to sort of serve up 
on stuff on the web, you know, to sort of have a, a backend server that uses if your data is not so big that you need a kind of fully distributed data store. Uh, SQLite 3 scales pretty well. Um, and so you can use it for quite a lot of data. Um, by, it's, I guess it's the classic, your data is not really as big as you think it is kind of thing. Like try it until yep. it doesn't work. And then when it doesn't work, you can you know, invest the effort of trying to use something else. Yeah, so for people who don't know, SQLite, basically it has the full ANSI SQL syntax. You could do selects, you could do joins, you could do all that stuff, just as if you're writing to like a MySQL database or something like that. But the entire database is just one file on your computer. Um, so you know, it's, it's, it's super cool, super portable, it works anywhere. And actually, the entire source code of SQLite is just one file, which is pretty amazing. Or horrifying. I'll go <laughs> yeah, make, it's, going it's with amazing. Actually, I think it's uh, it's actually a bunch of files, but then they have an amalgamation tool, which turns it into one file. Okay, I was going to say, um, that sounds like something you really just easy. script. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, cool. Yeah, SQLite's awesome. The tutorial, I'm sure it's really useful. Um, both of us have used SQLite a ton, so it's 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 super important. Definitely take a look at it. Um, if you're writing like massive JSON files that are like you know half a gig or something, you probably need to be using SQLite. Um, depending that, on the circumstance, but I mean, I guess that's a good segue. I, I work with a lot of people who have never used SQL before, and I actually hadn't until uh, my previous job. And then I used it and I realized how much I had been avoiding it, like how often it actually comes up and is important to know. Um, so I did it a little bit in college, but not enough to really understand it. Um, and then I started using it more and more. And it's something that if you've avoided it, don't avoid it. it it's actually very important to learn. It's a, it's a good tool to have. And you can probably get away avoiding it, or at least I did for a while. But eventually you're going to want to know how to use it. Yeah, I mean, I probably, well, it depends on the time of year. I mean, time of the project and stuff. But there are times where I spend just all day just doing SQL um, because you just, it's its the best for organizing data, transforming data, things like that. It's just, it makes life really, really easy. Cool. My news is uh, Mask RCNN in TensorFlow. So I'll explain what that is. So um, CNN is Convolutional Neural Network. Uh, I'm not going to go into too much detail on what that is, but let's just say it's really good for handling images. Um, RCNN is, uh, I think it's like a recurrent. I actually don't know off the top of my head what the R stands for. Probably recurrent, but I could be wrong on that. Um, and then the mask part is uh, basically, it's sort of, think of it as sort of like a set of tiles in the image. They're sort of sliding over. And... Uh, Super, super glossing over all the details, but check out this link. Um, basically, it's for image object detection and recognition images. So you can give it an image with a bunch of different objects. You know, there's like a person walking on the street and a traffic light and a car. And it will say, hey, there's a person and a traffic light and a car, and here's where they are, and here's their bounding box, and this is their label. Um, so, you know, you can imagine like regular image processing where you, know, you give it a bunch of digits, right? Zero through nine digits. And then you give it another digit and it says, oh, that's a seven, right? But what if you gave it you know, a book full of digits, like a book full of numbers? That's a much, much different problem because you have to turn that page, of, to turn that, that image of that book, you know, pull out all of the individual numbers, like know they're there, pull them out, and then run that first step, which says whether it's a seven or an eight. Right, so it's it's pretty complicated stuff. Um, the cool thing about this is that it's totally open source, and uh, it actually comes with the data. So so it's not like one of these things where, you know, you, you're just never going to be able to run it. Like if you just follow the instructions, you actually download the data, build the model, and uh, you'll be able to detect like cars and traffic lights and stuff like that. Sheep, uh, which is donuts, pretty cool. Sheep and donuts, that's a thing. I don't know, it's at the bottom of the examples. Oh, okay, nice. Um, but yeah, and it, it goes into tremendous detail. It's, it's really, really cool. And uh, if nothing else, you can just run the lines they tell you to, and you'll get this really cool thing at the end. So, so uh, check it out. 
Yeah, this seems like a like even more so than you were saying like uh, character recognition, sort of recognizing occluded objects, generating the mask for them. So not just saying is there a person in this image, but where are they and exactly what shape are they? Yep, that seems really tough. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. Um, yeah, as Patrick said, it handles occlusion, so you could have a person and you could have a stop sign in front of the person, and it'll actually handle that. Like basically, it will, you know, remove the stop sign, and uh, or or it'll just kind of like, yeah. I don't actually know. I don't. I'm not an image processing guy, so I don't know a lot about how it actually works under the hood. But it can actually say like, oh, these pixels, you know, probably don't belong to this person. And so it says, <clears throat> you know, I don't know what these pixels really are, um, but I know these pixels around are like this. And then it can say, oh, that's a person. Because, you know, even though there's all these non-person pixels there, I know that it's sort of a segment, a different segment. Um, so it does a lot of complicated stuff. And, and like a lot of things, um, neural networks have have sort of automated a lot of the human engineering, which is pretty remarkable. And uh, that that trend continues. Um, but yeah, check this out. I thought it was pretty amazing to look at. That's pretty cool. My next article asks the question, do you have learner's syndrome? Uh, mm-hmm. They admit right off the bat uh, that learner's syndrome is, is not really a thing. Uh, and they proceed to point out uh, something that I've thought about a fair amount, uh, especially you know now that I've been working as a software engineer for <clears throat> too long, uh, <laughs> and you know you see people come in and they're all excited and gung ho and they feel like they have the solution to everything, right? Or what if we only just use this technology or use that technology? Uh, and most we've talked about you know various languages before that that are you know three decades old or more uh oh four decades wow oh, i can't believe it's 2017 <laughs> um anyways it's, it's any uh and so we use like c plus plus and although we use you know c plus plus 11 almost 14 oh even that is buggy <laughs> but you know c plus plus goes back many many years has a lot of inertia behind it um a lot of historic stuff uh, and people are like, oh, if we could just use insert whatever, you know, up and coming language now, like then, then all our problems would be solved. Sure, Rust. Um, and what I find myself realizing is that I think one of the desires in technology, or at least for me, and I, I think for my, my coworkers, is to always be learning something new just for the sake of having an excuse to learn it. Like we have pretty flexible jobs for the most part where we have a lot of autonomy relative to, you know, if you were working on a, you know, factory assembly line or something. Um, you have a lot of latitude to make decisions on things. And so people look for excuses to use things that they would just like to learn. Uh, and the this article points out under the context of, of sort of web development, all the different frameworks that come out and how you have to know this and know that, you're expected to know you know, all of the full stack, front end, back end, databases, you're, you know, you're kind of expecting everything, but then people even just have all this desire to learn new frameworks. But the most they ever do is probably, you know, code up an example. They never really do much with it. And so they, they feel like they're accomplishing all of this learning, um, but it's really doesn't help them. It doesn't benefit anything. They're not saying, what problem do I have? And could I find something better to solve it with? Uh, and so, it's not a terribly long article, but it, it just begs the question that I think I notice a lot, which is, although it's great to learn, and I mean, we have a podcast where we talk about some technology or programming language every month. Um, <laughs> I think that it is important to to realize that it's not always great to jump on the newest thing. And that as you're using new things, as opposed to just being like, oh, this is the best thing ever, let's use it everywhere. You know, I always, I use this expression, it's not mine, I don't know where it came from though, but you know, it's another tool in the tool belt, right? If, yep. if all you have is a hammer, everything's a nail. So don't only have a hammer, you know, get yourself a set of tools and then make sure you use the right tool for the right job. Going around and just saying like, oh, Rust is cool. I mean, Rust is cool, but like going around saying Rust is cool, let's solve all the problems in Rust. Yeah, that's not gonna end up any better than when we try to solve all the problems in C++ or try to solve all the problems in Java, right? 
Um, although any of those might work, they're probably not the best answer. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually experienced this firsthand when I was brand new, like first job, um, out of undergrad, I only really knew C plus plus and, uh, and a little bit of Java. And, uh, basically I, I wanted to build this is a sort of side project of mine, which, um, um, I wanted to build this kind of uh, really kind of open-ended environment where I had these agents that had different AI and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, because it was AI and they were, I, was, I, was, I was having a lot of different variables, I need something that was really dynamic. And so I, I basically had this class in C++, uh, C++ class that just had a map from uh, variant to variant. And then I had this variant class that, that used the boost variant library. So it could be a, you know, an integer or a string or it could be anything, right? Oh, dear. And so I had this class that was basically just a map of anything to anything. And then everything just started being a map of anything to anything. <laughs> and I ended up with this sort of dynamic language. I could even script, things like that. And at some point I realized, like not soon after, um, that I had built like just the worst version of Python ever, <laughs> you know, like it was just, I mean, it was that, that Python was exactly that, but then a million other things too and way optimized and stuff like that. And, and I think the big thing about this show is, is we explain all these different languages to people so that they can sort of understand the context, like they can embed the languages that they know in sort of this greater context. And so they won't try and build like a very poor man's Python in C++. Um, but yeah, with that said, I kind of, I have uh, sort of the opposite problem where I don't really like learning a bunch of different languages um, to do, like I don't like learning some crazy language. I would rather sort of like deconstruct something into an into a language that already exists. Like I've worked at jobs where people had sort of custom languages and it almost always seemed like that language could have been replaced with Python. Um, but uh, um, I do have times where I have sort of this, maybe it's like an analysis paralysis where I want to do a project and there's maybe four or five different frameworks and I end up bouncing between learning these frameworks instead of actually doing the project. And if I just picked even the worst of the five, I would have got way more done. Yeah, so on the exact topic of the, the article, I think it's, it's saying that is, you know, maybe a little less learning and a little more using the thing you know to get stuff done. Uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah. I think you're absolutely right, which is whenever I start a project and I can choose what to do or how to approach it, the going is really slow. I find it very difficult to discipline myself to sort of, I'm just going to pick something and solve it poorly and then figure out how to do it again. Um, yeah. I, I tend to bounce back and forth. Oh, like was working on some project that is like wrote a little bit of Java, then wrote a little bit of Python. Then it's like, Oh, maybe I should do it in C plus plus. I was just like, Oh, this is terrible. <laughs> like, I'm just going to pick one, get it done. And then I'll choose. Yeah, that's a good point. I actually, uh, I'm working on a, a little game to teach machine learning to uh, kids. I've been working on this for, for years, but I, I, I shelved it for a long time and now I got back into it. And uh, there's this engine that everybody uses now. It just it exploded in popularity. It's called Godot, uh, like the mathematician. And uh, it has their own language called Godot script. And I just hated having to learn another language so i kind of you know put it off i was looking at other frameworks and things like that and then finally i just said forget it let me just learn this godot script and and you know get this done because because this i mean if you could learn this language the tooling on this thing's amazing and basically it was a bit of a pain for a few days but i think part of you know recording this show for however many years we've been doing it i was able to pick up the language pretty quick in like an hour or so and then uh uh, yeah, I actually have a quick, like a simple demo, like like a level one of the game. Um, um, and it, it exports to Android and everything else. But it's like, if I didn't get over that barrier, I just wouldn't have had really anything. So it's, it's definitely, it's a tricky balance. But, uh, 
Yeah, learner syndrome is kind of going too far on the other end. <laughs> so with that in mind, my tool this show is Unity 3D ML Agents. What? So yeah, so yeah, the only engine that really rivals Godot is Unity. Um, Unity's closed source, so uh, I'm gonna stick with Godot for now. But it's pretty amazing. I mean, a most a lot of professional game studios use Unity. Um, it's got a bunch of amazing features. I think we actually did we do a show mm-hmm. on Unity? Yeah, we did. Okay, so so uh, check out that show. We talk about it in great detail. Um, they added this thing, yeah, ML agents. Basically, um, they add a variety of different reinforcement learning um, agents, and uh, it's pretty cool. So so you can um, <clears throat> you can you know, give them sort of a a uh, you know, a representation of the world, or you could even just have a camera and it will learn from the camera, you know, as best it can. Um, and uh, yeah, they have a bunch of cool demos. Um, they have this multi-age, so, so they have different sort of categories, which I found kind of interesting. Um, they have sort of a single agent. So this is, you know, imagine you're writing uh, AI to play Frogger, like to be the frog in Frogger. So, in this case, you know, you have this environment with all these cars that move around and stuff like that. And the agent has to sort of, you know, navigate that maze, right? Um, but then it gets much more interesting with multiple agents. So you can have, for example, 10 agents that are all sort of cooperating. They have like one mind that's controlling all 10 of them. And so they can kind of coordinate. Um, you have this one where they're all sort of 10 agents, but they're all against each other. And so they don't share information and stuff like that. And it kind of breaks it down. It has some cool demos. And uh, I I noticed they left out the case where there's more than three agents or more than two agents that can cooperate. Um, and the reason why they left it out is that's an open research problem. So it says actually says demo coming soon for that one. And I'm wondering, like, it's, it's sort of like saying, you know, it's a joke. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of like saying space travel, you know, faster than light travel Fusion. coming soon. Cold yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like as a reinforcement learning researcher, I'm just like, really, how soon is that? But I mean, you know, they could obviously build something, but 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 something that would work in in, a, in that general problem is uh, currently like an open research problem. But uh, but it's pretty cool. Um, definitely check it out. Um, the demos look pretty neat. So. That's, so I think it's now time for Book of the Show. Book of the Show. I'm totally cheating here, but I have to admit I've done a ton of reading in this game, and uh, and uh, it took my whole month, <laughs> or at least since the last show we recorded. Um, it's called 80 Days. It's based on the Jules Verne book, which I have not read because I've been too busy playing this game. Um, but it... it uh, I think it's pretty faithful to the book from reading the reviews and things like that. Um, basically, in 80 days, you um, there's a very small sort of shell of a game where you have to go to different cities and you can pick which city to go to and um, you can take a few actions when you're in the city. Um, but that's basically a thin shell around what is really like a very detailed um uh, you know, interactive fiction. So there's a bunch of sort of it, think of an interactive fiction as like a choose your own adventure, um, but just a little bit more open ended, right? Um, and yeah, you can depending on what trajectory you take to go around the world, and there's many. Um, you get just all these really interesting stories, and you know, I won't spoil any of it because it's it's like a book. You know, if you if I was to say one of the stories, it would just ruin it. So I won't spoil anything, but. Uh, um, it's really cool. I highly recommend it. They have it on Android, iOS. They probably have it on PC as well. Um, and uh, yeah, check it out. And it's actually, it makes me really want to read the actual book. So I, I had always thought that 80 Days was a, I knew it was a fiction book, but I thought it was a fiction book based on the real world. You know, like like I figured they'd be taking boats and trains and stuff like that. What I did not expect was there's a bunch of like fantastical creatures and things like that, um, and uh, uh, you know a bunch of like fantastical machines and everything. It's it's really cool and and it's very well done. Very nice. 
my book of the show is a traditional book. Uh, All right. Although I did listen to it instead of read it. Is forging nice. forging Hephaestus. Um, so this book I, I think is relatively new, and and I didn't find it to be an especially uh, deep or in engaging book, but it was a nice sort of whatever you call it, like a pop pop read, like pop music, popular or whatever. I don't know. Um, and it is a science fiction book, I guess. And it's about a uh, a woman who has superpowers. Oh, this is gonna sound so cheesy. Anyways, it's okay. about a woman who has superpowers, also likes building things, uh, and she gets herself wrapped up into a world where uh, lots of other people have superpowers, and she basically is in, finds herself in league with a, a group of villains um, and sort of talking through how the villains interact and you know how the world works with all the superheroes. And it doesn't go in-depth to you know, trying to come up with plausible science as to how all this works. In fact, it sort of pokes fun at that. Um, but okay. it, it's just a sort of a nice, fun, light read. Um, and this was by a, a person named Drew Hayes. I've, I've never read anything of theirs before, but I thought this was a nice, easy read. Definitely didn't, you know, wasn't a brain burner or like, whoa, I gotta rewind that. Hang on, what just happened? Uh, just a nice, easy, light, fun read about sort of, you know, what I imagine, you know, well, they actually do write books about comic books like books involving the people from comic books. It's kind of like that. Like if you just have a nice, like what you would read in a comic book, but someone actually wrote it with words instead of uh, comic book pages. Cool. I'm doing a terrible job. (laughs) It's so hard to describe a book. No, it sounds good. I mean, it sounds like, uh, is it like a kind of a parody of of comic books or no? It's just Um, in that vein. So I've previously, Brandon Sanderson has uh, a book about superheroes as well. Um, what was it called? Oh, man. I think it was like Calamity. And there's, I think I've recommended a couple of the books in that series. Uh, anyways, and this is sort of in a similar vein, except a little more goofy and lighthearted, I guess. Um, but no, it's not oh, a okay. parody of it. It's just sort of, you know, most you can't write a comic book about Batman, you know, because Batman is licensed. So everyone has to come up with their own kind of stuff. And they're not, you know, making fun of Batman. They didn't have their own characters and doing their own thing. But I, you can't sort of write in that without paying some sort of homage to those kinds of things. So I wouldn't say it's a parody, but it is just trying to be sort of in the same style. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Very cool. I feel like I should just read the whatever the back of the book because I think they would no. do a better job. That's boring. People, you can just go online and do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the goal is to get people inspired enough to do that. So, yes. <laughs> if you're looking for a lighthearted book set in a comic book style setting without any trademark infringing characters, I would recommend Forging Hephaestus. Uh, it's nice. the Villain's Code book one. Although, as far as I know, there's no book two yet. So... TBD if it actually becomes a series. Very cool. Yeah, I'm reading uh, the book of the show from last month, uh, the Claude Shannon book. And when I'm done with that, I'm actually, and I'm actually, um, I chose to read that book, like like read read it. Um, so I have a really long flight coming up. So I think I will I will get this and I'll listen to it. Nice. Cool, and I'll listen to it on Audible. So I have. Uh, I have an Audible subscription, and uh, it's been, uh, the audience knows probably better than we do, or someone in the audience knows when I said I got the subscription. I think it's been about six months, but I've definitely used every credit almost immediately, and uh, it's been it's been a lot of fun. Um, if you want to get an Audible subscription and help us out at the same time, you can go to audibletrial.com slash programming throwdown. We have a link in the show notes. And uh, when you sign up, you'll get a free book, and uh, you'll also help out the show. Very nice. And Jason already mentioned our Patreon, but if you go to patreon.com slash programming throwdown, uh, you can uh, elect to give us a donation for each episode that we release. And we're thankful to all the people who have done Audible Trials uh, and who sponsor us on Patreon. Uh, Definitely helps encourage us uh, to keep making shows. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you can... Uh, I won't. I won't feel bad if, uh, or I won't make you feel bad if you join Patreon. Uh, you know, win the biggest prize and then leave. You know, you're totally free to do that. Um, 
but uh, we appreciate everybody, even even if you just joined for a month. We appreciate that uh, you uh, helped us out. It really keeps the show going. It lets us reach new people and, and all that good stuff. <clears throat> uh, my tool of the show is Firefox Developer Edition. So uh, one thing about this, so Firefox Alpha, which hopefully becomes beta or becomes Firefox very soon, is amazing. Um, and, and actually, I uh, haven't used Firefox, hadn't used Firefox in years. Um, somebody at work just said, hey, you have to check out the new Firefox. And it was somebody who works on our WebSpeed team. And uh, so I took, took his opinion really seriously. And, and so I checked it out. And it is amazing. Like, I can't wait for this to come out. It's It doesn't use very much RAM. It, uh, it runs super fast. And uh, I just, I feel like, you know, Chrome was really amazing when Chrome came out, but now it's kind of, especially in terms of how much memory it uses, it's becoming kind of more and more bloated. And Firefox, they basically redid everything. Um, they started kind of from the ground up. And I think a lot of it is in Rust, that they rewrote it in Rust. I don't know if that matters or not in terms of like what I'm seeing, but I'm just, the performance is unbelievable. Um, and so Firefox Developer Edition is a, fork of Firefox Alpha, which has a bunch of really cool features for developers. Like it'll do really intense like profiling um, of your of your website. It uh, does a has a bunch of really cool features like JavaScript debugging and things like that. Um, and it's running Firefox Alpha. And it's you know it, even though it has all these developer features, you could use it as your regular browser if you wanted to. Um, so definitely download this, check it out. You'll be blown away at how amazing it is. Um, and, and you could also do some really cool debugging while you're there. I saw someone else mention that the new Firefox was pretty good, but I haven't, I don't know. I'm too lazy now, I guess. I should check it out. But d will it migrate all of my like bookmarks and tabs? Because I have lots of tabs. Yeah, so, um, you know, I actually had, back when I ran Firefox and Chrome kind of alternating, um, there's a thing called a bookmark box. It's an extension, and it basically syncs your bookmarks to Dropbox. And if you oh. run the same extension on on multiple browsers, it'll just keep everything in sync. Oh, I should have done. I should make that the tool of the show and install it right now. Um, <laughs> there you go. You no, could do that. Yeah. I don't know. I, I guess my thing is I use tons of tabs. Like I use tabs as sort of a light for an ephemeral bookmark or whatever, um, which makes oh, okay. me sad if my browser ever crashes and I lose my tabs. Oh, yeah. But um, I just sort of I don't like the creating a bookmark seems so permanent. Um, yeah, it's true. There really needs to be a better. And I, I like just sort of scrolling through Hacker News or Reddit or whatever, and just like, you know, doing command click or middle click on the mouse and just like click, 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 like opening a ton of things and leaving yep. them as sort of like a very, you know, I'll skim them later and then close it. I don't want to bookmark it. But man, I get so much flack at work when people ever come by and they're like, dude, how many tabs do you have? You know what's funny? I get I have exactly the same thing, and everyone says the same thing to me too. It's like great minds think alike. <laughs> I'm gonna go with that. I'm gonna say next time someone tells me that the great Jason said that he also <laughs> runs a ton of tabs, and I'll do the same thing, and no one will know that. No one will know who the other one is. <laughs> oh, there we go. Uh, we just need like famous Twitter accounts now or something. Be like, yeah, uh, that's right. At, at, Patrick says, um, we, we need to get the blue badge or whatever, the verified badge. I've been on Twitter and I don't even know how long. Um, I hear it's popular these days. <laughs> uh, I feel like I have to give a financial statement. I'm short Twitter, so uh, if it goes down, <laughs> that makes me money. So, Wait, are you kidding or are you serious? No, I'm serious, but that's okay. Really? Yeah. I've, actually, I've never shorted anything my whole life. Oh. I, I mean, I know what it is, but I just... I just feel like uh, it's for it's for the pros. <laughs> oh wow! I I feel scared or I don't know. I complimented. Mean, I'm not a, you know, <laughs> I'm not a good in person to ask investment advice. Okay, well, this will be it'll derail the conversation greatly. But yes, I yeah yeah. Uh, so we'll we'll move on. Interesting. Okay. I'm not long Twitter, so uh, no no spilt <laughs> milk if uh, they go down. Um, there you go. My tool of the show is a game, surprise, uh, The Witness. And yes, I know I'm really late to the party. Everyone already played this a long time ago on their computer. 
Um, but I've been playing it on my iPad. And uh, although I did start playing it without a controller, like I do have a wireless controller, and I initially I was trying to play this, and I saw some of the reviews saying, oh, you really got to use a controller. I was like, oh, this is no problem. Um, I, I'm just enjoying just tapping. This is working well. And then I got to a couple puzzles, and I was like, oh, you totally have to have a controller. Um, oh, what and did so, you do? Well, if you've, have you, if you've played The Witness, you'll, you'll know. But if you've not, it's a puzzle game by this, I think it's the same guy who made um, Braid. Jonathan Blow, is it? Yeah, um, that's right. And so it's uh, in the vein of kind of like, I guess, Mist or Raven, if you've ever played, played one of those, where um, there's all of these puzzles to do. But sometimes the puzzles are, you know, very obvious. Like there's a blinking thing on the screen and you need to, you know, interact with it in some way. And sometimes you need to sort of position yourself very carefully within the environment. Like look in a very specific direction uh, from a very specific spot so that you can see a clue. Um, So if you imagine like whatever they show when they, you know, do Stonehenge, like on a certain night, if you look through a certain hole drilled in a certain stone, then you can see the, you know, for one minute, the moon appears in the hole or whatever, you know, something like that. Like you need to be lined up at this specific spot. And the, <clears throat> the fine-tuned adjustments sort of necessitate needing, a, for me, uh, the video game controller, the sort of wireless controller to be able to kind of move your position very slightly. Uh, uh, but other than that, the game itself, I'm really enjoying. I'm terrible at it, I think. Like, I feel... It's one of those things that makes you feel like you're missing out a bunch of things. But I've been trying okay. to not cheat and use a strategy guide. Okay, it's not cheating. But I just try not to use a strategy <laughs> guide because I know I could just look up all the answers to all the puzzles. But if I'm going to do that, I should just, you know, like watch a walkthrough on YouTube or something. Yeah, it'll ruin the game immediately. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it's really tough to, you know, sort of play through. And some of the things I, I have had to look at the strategy guide a couple of times because some stuff I felt like, oh, that wasn't completely obvious. And I am a not long attention span gamer. So I, I knew I would just give up before figuring it out. Um, but overall, I've really enjoyed the puzzles. They're very varied, and I mean, I, I think they're pretty well thought out. Um, so if you've not checked out The Witness before, a, a puzzle gamer, puzzle game, uh, now it's available on, I think, PC, Android, iOS, you know, everything. So And it cool. is a little bit of a premium game. I think, it's, I think when I bought it, it was like $15 or $20. Um, but, I mean, it's a really good game, and you would pay way more than that, you know, for it on the PC when it first came out. So I don't feel that bad. Yeah, it makes sense. I'm surprised, actually, that there aren't $50 games on iOS. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it, it seems like, I, I mean, I'm surprised. I still feel that $50, $60, $70 games are really expensive. I, yeah, in fact, okay, I don't, maybe that's true. Maybe I don't it's think like, I've I'm ever... Guess, oh, yeah, I just, like, yeah, I guess I'm surprised PC games aren't $30. I'm surprised iOS games aren't $30. Yes, <laughs> maybe I, I agree pretty. more with this sentiment. Yeah, I'm not the kind of person. I, maybe I think I've played games when they first came out, but I don't play a lot online, so I don't feel compelled to buy a game when it first comes out. So I always buy them when they're, yeah, like five dollars. Yeah. So yeah, like sense. five years later. Hey, nothing wrong with that. A lot of games are. I still play a lot of classics. Oh, which I will say, if you're into that kind of thing, I joined a subreddit. Uh, I think it's called Patient Gamers. Mm-hmm which is for other people of like-minded thing about playing playing games long after they've come out and it's all it's kind of fun cuz it's all about people being like I know that I've I finally got around to playing this game like here's a top post currently finally finished the first assassin's creed which who even knows how long that came out um, oh, yeah. playing zelda a link to the past for the first time oh man that game's great yeah so um, people are just sort of talking about instead of oh the latest greatest game the latest greatest patch you know they're talking about things that you know came way came out a long time ago and there's a lot of good stuff in here you know i sort of forgot about or didn't know about that's really cheap in sales and it also my computer is not sort of up to scratch to playing modern games so um Mm -hmm. there's that now it doesn't have things like uh it isn't mostly about console games there are occasionally but it's not like you would see on kind of an emulator or forum where people are, you know, talking about, you know, classic Super Nintendo games all the time. It's 
a lot about PC games, but you will occasionally see um, console games on there as well. Oh, very cool. Oh, I guess it's a mix, maybe an even mix. Uh, that was off topic, nice. sorry. No, no, it's fine. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. I, I love going back and playing old games. All right, time All for right. internationalization. <clears throat> internationalization, I-18-N, as they say. I did not know what that meant for a very long time. I will not lie. Me too. I had no idea. So for people who don't know, I-18-N, it's, it's just because there's 18 letters in between the first and last letter of internationalization. So it's just the I of internationalization, then 18, then the N. And they have the same for localization. It's L-10-N. And uh, yeah, for the longest time, I was like, what is... I mean, I, I knew vaguely what it was about, but I had no idea the context of that. I feel like you and I probably learned this at the same place. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. So yeah, I, I too, I, I somehow by context figured out what it was. Um, but yeah, I someone had to explain it to me. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, no, I never, yeah, anyways. I actually just thought it was like, because if you say I-18N, it kind of sounds like it. So I never bothered to count the letters. But. Oh, no, in my case, basically, like uh, I just went to this meeting and right off the bat, the person was like, how many people here have heard of I-18N? And they just explained it, right? Oh, there. okay, okay. Yeah, I, I didn't didn't have that. So so yeah. th- different. let's talk about what localization and internationalization are and what the difference is. So I think when, for me at least, I, I mostly hear the term internationalization, I-18N, but often people mean localization. Um, so we'll talk about localization first because I think it's the one that you know you you probably think about when you hear it which localization is sort of translating a computer app or program or website to a different location so you're making it local to a person's language to their customs for things Um, you're doing all of the stuff to make it feel as if sort of that piece of software was written for only for people in that area. So each person gets a different locale. You know, if when you install Windows and it asks you, you know, sort of where you are and what language you speak, the idea is they want to make it feel like Windows was written supporting you, where you are in the world, as if you know local people wrote it. Uh, internationalization is making software that can be localized. So not making assumptions in the code about which stuff we're going to talk about, but sort of the act of supporting localization is kind of called internationalization. But internationalization could also kind of mean doing things in a way such that, you know, the most people uh, feel that it's kind of the right way, even if you don't do localization. So you can do internationalization without localization, and I guess in theory you could do localization even if you didn't do internationalization, but it would make it really miserable. Um, oh, yeah, how would that work? So, I mean, you could just, for instance, like take all of the bytecode for a program and change the strings from English to oh. Spanish and oh, hope that, you know, they're all the same length or something, right? <laughs> okay, you could do enough. it. Yeah. I don't know that people hard. do do that. It would just, yeah, it would be horrible, right? You know, or, or you kind of think of like you, the equivalent of running Google Translate, you know, instead of having someone translate your page for you uh, or, or doing it yourself, you could sort of just scrape all the text off of a page and run it through Google Translate and then claim that was your, you know, localization strategy without having right. done much internationalization. Makes sense. Okay. Anyways. So why don't you tell us some about the, th- the kinds of things you should worry about? Yeah, so, so localization and internationalization is actually really, really hard. I mean, it sounds easy, but, um, but there's a lot of complexity. And it makes sense. I mean, the world... It's a know, big place. Like, yeah, there's, there's just... There's just I try to figure out... I feel like if you say this wrong, it comes off really bad. So I'm like, I'm re- I want to be really careful. But basically, like... There's just several, there's many civilizations that have been around for a really long time. And so there's a completely different set of customs. And all of that is sort of reflected in the language, right? Um, so, for example, there's some, uh, 
there's some uh, languages that go right to left. Like I think Hebrew goes right to left, and uh, I don't know. That's the only one I can think of. But uh, and there are some that go bottom to top. Like I think Japanese, right, or Chinese, or something, or maybe it's just in their sign. But there are definitely some languages where, when written, they they start at the bottom and go up. Um, so that's that's something to think about. Like you, so if you have something left justified in in English, it probably should be right justified in, in Hebrew, right? Um, there's sometimes uh, there's some uh, places in the world where they use the period to separate numbers. So if you have like a thousand, it'll be one dot zero zero zero. Right? I think most European countries are like this. Um, in the U.S. and Canada, they use commas, right? Um, currency symbols, right? I mean, it's so easy. Just, you, know, you put a dollar sign, you know, for a hundred dollars, but it's a pound, and it's who knows how many. It's probably tens of of different currency symbols at least. Um, also, the dates. Um, we do month, day, year. Um, actually, there's like a bunch of places in the world where they do day, month, year, which actually kind of makes more sense, like as from a computer science standpoint. But uh, but you know. Those are two sort of different standards, and even though like day, month, year might make sense, you know, logically, you know, everyone in the U.S. is used to seeing month, day, year, and so we have to be able to accommodate sort of both of those standards, right? So there's a lot more going on than just replacing strings. I think other things that you know, sort of thinking about this, um, and a lot of it applies, I guess, maybe more so to kind of websites than to software per se but you got to realize there's cultural differences as well um like putting a bacon cheeseburger on the front of your you know non-food related site um may appeal to you as a you know american but somebody who is sort of doesn't eat pork then they're going to see that bacon or someone who doesn't eat beef is going to see the hamburger you know they're going to be they're not going to have the reaction you wanted them to have um or that you thought they might have by looking at that thing or someone who's vegan, right? Like everyone's going to have a different reaction based not just on where you live, but, you know, lots of different things about who you are. And so thinking about those kinds of things, I think can also come into play here, which is understanding who your audience is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's a really good point. I mean, it's, even if you do all of this, right, it's not, necessarily the end like you also have to think about just the entire experience and and the whole the whole app user experience you know is it catering to the different markets that that you're you know operating in the one that i always think about i guess is and i i've not spent a ton of time doing it but i i know it's a thing is i always came from c where a character is a bite a char uh, and yep. a character is eight bits of which only 127 are actually valid. Um, and so it's the lower 127 numbers and you can look up, you know, whatever that guy who's probably made millions of dollars when you search ASCII table, uh, and it comes up <laughs> Yeah, that's right. and I, I forget, I think I saw it one time, this guy, anyways, this person runs this website, ASCIItable.com, And every time you search ASCII table, if you're a C programmer, you've, you've looked this up before. I know you have. Um, and so this is what I always think about when I think about character sets. But this is by no means not even the beginning of all of the characters. That's right. Yeah, I mean, there's... Um, so Unicor- uh, Unicode is, uh, is, is incredibly complex. And I only know just the very basics. Um, but basically... Unicode is, 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 at this point, it's like pretty well standardized. Um, and it can represent just so many different characters. Um, there's just unbelievable, like, all sorts of, like, acrylic and Arabic and Chinese and different, like, traditional and simplified. And it just, like, goes on and on and on. Um, but the really kind of cool, uh, there's different, you know, UTF, you know, Unicode uh, uh, text formats. Um, but the most... Uh, interesting widely used one is UTF-8 and the cool thing about UTF-8 is um, you know if you're just doing characters 0 to 128 so you know this includes all the you know English letters and digits and and symbols and you know 
most of the things that you're used to printing on the console, um, those are actually, they translate, there's, there's, they're the same character. So in other words, if you want to print like a lowercase p, then whatever the um, ASCII value for that is, the UTF-8 value is the same thing. And so every ASCII file you have is also a UTF-8 file, right? And so the way they kind of handle that is, you know, you have your 0 to 128. And so remember, this is, you know, uh, an 8-bit character. So you have an eighth bit left over, right? Like you can do, oh, sorry, I said 0 to 128. It's actually 0 to 127. You can do 0 to 127. That only, that only takes 7 bits. You have this eighth bit left over. And, you know, with regular ASCII, that would be where your extended ASCII would go. So if the eighth bit was set true, then it's a number that's, you know, 128 or greater. And they use that to represent, you know, like pipes and half-filled-in characters, all sorts of kind of weird glyphs, right? So with Unicode, if that eighth bit is filled in, that tells the Unicode engine that this is a multi-byte character. So um, that next byte in, 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 the, in the file or whatever it is, 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 is a continuation of the current character. And that's going to unlock, you know, all those other characters. And, and that, that uh, idea actually keeps going. So in other words, even the second byte has that option where if that last bit is set, then that second byte is saying, hey, there's a, even another byte after me that's representing, you know, even some more characters. And uh, that's that's kind of the idea behind UTF-8. And so, you know, it wastes a bit of space because you have all these all these sort of bytes that are just telling you information instead of being able to represent characters. So it takes more space than like UTF-16 if, you know, a bunch of your characters were were 16-bit, right? But if a lot of your characters are just English letters and only a few of them are sort of that extended format, then you're actually saving a lot. Because, because in that case, that second byte would be just empty a lot. So it's sort of a trade-off, but you know, the combination of being able to represent ASCII and you know, saving bytes when you're just showing regular things like spaces and whatnot makes UTF-8 just completely dominate. So I mean, something like over 90% of the entire web is in, is in either ASCII or UTF-8. I think the other thing to watch out though is that assumption where I start off with, if you're sort of a C programmer, if you look at, uh, well, there's no strings, but if you look at a character array that's five bytes, including the null terminator, uh, because we're good C programmers, um, that the, <laughs> that the, that's not a four, necessarily a four character long string, right? So this is something that could get baked in if you're you know, doing formatting and assuming that, hey, I have five things in my array, I need to make space for four characters, that is you know, kind of a bad assumption because like Jason was explaining in UTF-8, you could have multiple bytes per displayed character. Yep, yeah, exactly. And that's part of internationalization is understanding yeah, you, that that can happen. Yeah, you don't want to try to do Unicode yourself. Like you don't want to try to print Unicode characters using just printf or something like that. It's yeah. gonna be a disaster. Yeah, I guess like an example, I, and I don't, I've never done this before, so I don't know how it works, but trying to think off the top of my head, I guess, if you asked, if you required a user to enter exactly a you know 10 character password, and so you saved you know only 11 bytes for that password, and someone enter, and and you had the ability to enter UTF-8 values, you could end up, you know, sort of truncating the person's password because you can't oh, save the whole thing, right? So, you know, that's part of understanding this assumption is saying that, oh, what's the maximum size something can be given if I know the maximum number of characters it can be? Yeah, that makes sense. I, it sounds like... Um, I mean, like, I've never really done low-level programming, and so I've always just passed strings around, not really knowing how many bytes there were under the hood. But it sounds like this is, like, very, very difficult. <laughs> you know, like if you're, if you're trying to handle internationalization in like C or something like that yourself, it's probably going to be bad news bears. 
Um, but they have, uh, I guess, Unicode strings and things like that, right? Even in C. Yeah, I mean, I think they're just handled not in the. I, I don't know. I don't want to say normal way. That that's not the quite right way of saying that. You just have to take a little bit of special care to make sure you have the right types. Oh, I see. Got it. So there's like a Unicode string STL type or something. Cool. So yeah, we'll talk about um, basically some tools that make this very easy. Um, like most things, I mean, this is going to be kind of a common motif, but uh, you don't want to be doing a lot of this yourself. Um, this is one of these things that there's been a few tools that have kind of risen to the top and, and kind of occupy, let's say, 90% of the internationalization uh, effort. And uh, they handle all these different complexities for you. And if there's some very esoteric need, someone goes, just goes in and fills that need in, in one of these libraries. So um, the most famous is GetText. Um, GetText is, if you, if you run any type of Linux, you already have GetText. It's almost impossible to not have GetText on the Linux machine. I think even OS X, Patrick, you'd probably correct me if I'm wrong, but I think even OS X has GetText. I've, uh, I've never tried it, so I don't know. Probably. Um, yeah, so I'm pretty sure. So <clears throat> um, GetText, uh, it does a bunch of different things, but basically one of the things is whenever you have a string literal, so imagine if you, your program just says, uh, you know, see out bracket bracket you know hello i'm a dog or something right so <laughs> i don't know what made me think of that so <laughs> so uh so what you do is with that string literal you would put uh, underscore parentheses and you'd put that string little uh, literal in parentheses um, and what that's going to do actually is um that's going to invoke a compiler macro so get text has a compiler macro that's the the macro is underscore, so they've kind of taken that macro. Um, and uh, that is going to allow us to sort of swap out that string with something else. And so there's a bunch of other utilities. It's not you know entirely done at runtime. Um, but basically, you can write your code with this style. And I think it's, uh, it's n underscore if you have a number. There's a couple of other macros for different, you know, uh, things. And then uh, uh, it will uh, generate what's called a PO file, um, like a personalization object file. And what that's going to do is it's going to say, hey, here's the string as you put it, which let's say you're an English programmer, you would write the string in English, like, hello, I'm a dog in English. And so this PO file will have your string in whatever language you did. And then the next line, it'll have a placeholder for you to put the string in a different language. So you'll have a PO file for, well, assuming you're writing the code in English, you have a PO file for you know, French and Dutch and German and all these other languages. And each of those PO files will have all of your strings the way you wrote them. And then in between them, there'll just be these empty lines where you can write the, the string in the other format. And uh, then when you build your code, you say, hey, I want to build, you know, the French version and get get text will do all those substitutions um, as it's building the code, depending on how your build system is set up. Um, so it's in that sense, it's pretty straightforward. It handles numbers. It does does all that pretty well. Um, and uh, yeah, it's 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 basically the standard. So that's the first thing you should try. It's built into Python. Um, it has bindings for PHP and Java and all the other languages. Um, and uh, that's like the go-to thing. So if, if, if for whatever reason you can't use GetText, um, check out ICU. ICU is, is uh, it's actually pretty common in Java to use ICU instead of GetText. Um, but this also supports other languages. Um, and uh, yeah, those are the two big ones I can think of. Um, they, they kind of dominate, so. Have you ever had to do any uh, internationalization? I'm sure I'm probably uh, done the opposite. I've probably done horrible, bad assumptions in my code. Um, I am exactly the same way. <laughs> no, I, I don't know. Like, it's always something I've, it's, uh, it's forever on my list of I should do better at. 
Um, I did. We did briefly talk about it at my um, previous uh, one of my previous jobs that we were gonna, you know, sort of release some stuff in in another language, and that we needed to, you know, what was it gonna take to support it? But we were also on a very low resource device, and so, you know, the thought of having all of our strings take twice as long, you know, twice as many bytes would have put us in a really bad spot already. So we sort of got away with not having to do it at that time. Um, and so, Makes sense. but yeah, I, I can imagine it's it, anything from very simple to very complex. Um, I also, yeah, I think, Oh, go ahead. No, no, I was gonna say, I mean, the other thing we, we tried to do on that project was just eliminate as much text as we could from, being necessary so using oh, that's a lot a of really like good point like icons instead of words yeah that totally makes sense yeah i mean i think you know the get texting is pretty simple i think as you said it gets way harder when you have to deal with like right to left because even you know people don't think about this but like you know even like you have the close button on the top left if you're running os 10 anyways you have the close button on the top left that's actually on the top right if you're if you're on the right to left mode like because in other words it's not just oh draw the text and not like reverse order but it's really like people are used to what we're used to seeing on the left like table of contents all those things they're used to seeing those on the right and so the entire user experience has to flip um you know almost like flipping the screen but you can't you can't just do that because then all the glyphs will be backwards so so it's, it's pretty complicated um, but yeah, I also, I've done almost nothing in this space. Uh, the only thing that I've had to do is deal with get text problems. Like when packages won't compile and things like that because of get text. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's super important, especially now people are, you know, you can release an app on the app store today and, and sell that app in like 20 or 30 different countries. And, uh, sometimes it's amazing, you know, there's been things like Orkut. Orkut's a good example of something that's just insanely popular in, in Brazil, kind of almost randomly. And uh, that could happen to your app, and you might end up where your biggest market are, are people in a different country. And Didn't they finally shut down Orkut? Them. They did, yeah. It took a very long time. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean <laughs> to interrupt you. But yeah, I think you're right. Like having a strangely popular in another place thing. Yeah. Yeah, totally makes Good sense. problem to have? Yeah, I mean, as long as you have the get text, then you're good to go. Cool. So, yeah, I think that covers internationalization. Um, yeah, just a, as a summary, you definitely want to, uh, you know, look into one of these libraries. If you, if you know how they work in advance, that really is useful because you can kind of, even if you don't internationalize on day one, you can kind of structure your app in a good way. Um, uh, and uh, yeah we'll see you guys to, uh, next month with our prize giveaway we'll go live for that and uh, I'll give you more details about that later on hey guys this is Patrick in the editing bay we're, uh, we got some submissions for new theme songs so we're trying them out as outros this first one is The Tube by Parker Knight
The intro music is AXO by Binar Pilot. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide uh, attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I and uh, share alike in kind.